Alright, so please turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. We're continuing our study in the book of Mark. This is actually the first time we've been together since we've been in this book. But that's fine. So Mark chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at the last two little sections of that, verses 22 through 35, before we go to his word, let's go in prayer and ask for help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we know that your word is the only rule by which we may glorify and enjoy you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning. As we come to your word, because we seek to glorify and enjoy you. Yet we are taught many things from many different places. And so help us to parse through the wisdom of this world and measure it against the wisdom that we find in your word. We pray that you would be glorified as we learn from it this morning. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen. So as I read this passage, it made me think of something I talk about a lot, actually, and it's lists. You know, people like lists of things. They like following lists when it comes to rules. You think about the current pandemic, and we have a list of guidelines that we're asked to follow. And in general, we respect those words. We, we do them. We like to, to make sure that we're following the rules. We even in our Christian lives, we secretly like lists because it makes us makes it easy to tell who isn't following the rules as well. Sometimes this is a good thing to know who's not following the rules. Sometimes it's really not a good thing because we think too much of ourselves. You've heard me talk about these things before in the Christian life, how it can be damaging to us and, and give us this feeling of self-righteousness. Any law can do that. Even the good laws do that. So we have to be on our guard. Yet in our text today, we kind of have the opposite of that kind of list. And it's a list of one thing. It's the opposite in that it's the one thing that is seemingly the worst thing that a person could ever do. It is the sin that Jesus calls unforgivable. We've all seen this text in our Bibles, I'm sure of it, and if we're honest, we've looked at this and thought, oh no, I hope that I haven't done this. I mean, that's just the the facts. We've all done that. It's funny because one type of list can help us to, or cause us to think much more of ourselves, and this kind of list that we have in our text today can make us think too less of ourselves, and make us think that we have no righteousness at all. We have no righteousness, of course, in ourselves, it's worth mentioning, but it's the righteousness of Christ that holds up the believer. When we look at this sin in an incorrect way, we can attempt to then diminish the righteousness of Christ in our life. Thankfully, both efforts, inflated self-righteousness and deflated righteousness of Christ, are both folly. We can't do anything to affect the real truth of the matter that we are His. And so, as we come to this passage today, we're going to look at what it means to commit this unforgivable sin. That sin from which Jesus looks at and says, nope, I cannot forgive that one. We'll get a picture of Jesus' family in this too, and I think it actually 
works really well and ties into that first point. So as we look at this, I want to do it in two points. First, then, the unforgivable sin, and then, secondly, the forgivable sinner. And so with that, let's look together at the text, Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 22. Let's stand together in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 3, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder the house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my brother and my mothers? Or who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother, or my brother and sister and mother. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just a little bit of context before we get into this. As we get into this, remember what was going on in last week's message. Jesus healed many. He cast out demons. And then he called a group of people that he called his apostles and that this was going to be his really close group of friends. And there were 12 men that were mentioned. In the Gospels, there are lots of people who are called disciples of Christ. We read that as there are as many as probably 70 or more that he sent out as his followers, as his disciples. However, it's these 12 that we see mentioned above that are specifically sent out by Jesus to do the work of ministry. And then later they plant churches as we read in the book of Acts. The word apostle literally means ones who are sent. And so this is a particular group that stands above the other. And right at the end of that passage last week, we read that Jesus' family showed up to take him away. Remember what their reasoning was. They wanted to take him away because he was out of his mind. We'll pick back up with Jesus' family today, actually. But first we have this business to deal with about this unforgivable sin, which has caused a lot more anxiety than just about anything in the Bible. I've answered lots and lots of questions over the years from people who just have general questions about the Bible or about other things. And honestly, the unforgivable sin probably ranks up there with like dinosaurs and infant baptism. That's the things that I have had to talk about the most in uh, my, my work as a pastor. We have to remember, as we come to this, we have to remember general hermeneutical principles when we come to a text like this. Now, 
Hermeneutical is a big word, but it's not a bad word. It just means our generally our methodology for interpreting Scripture. What methodology do we use when we come to the Scripture and, and attempt to interpret it? There are lots of different hermeneutical principles out there. Some of them are not worth anything. Some of them are very good and they're important to us. The important one for us today is we're going to let the easy parts of Scripture tell us how to think about the hard parts of Scripture. And that is just a general principle when you're going through the Bible and you're trying to learn something. Let the easy parts tell you what the hard parts mean. Because we also know another general good hermeneutical principle is God cannot lie. And if God cannot lie, then what I read in one part of the Bible is not contradictory to what I've read in another part of the Bible, right? And so if the easy parts determine the hard parts and God cannot lie, I can use those two things to really come to a good conclusion on what it means that there's the sin that Jesus talks about that cannot be forgiven. Those basic principles help us. And that's pretty much how I come to every single text, is look at those, because it's not rocket science. All right, and so as we get to that, let's look at the first point, unforgivable sin. Look with me at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And so this whole interaction begins with the scribes. Remember we talked about the scribes in an in a earlier message. They're this group of people, and they don't like Jesus at this point in his ministry. In fact, they're trying to figure out how they can get rid of him. And at this point, they're spreading rumors about Jesus. They're attempting to discredit him by saying that he is a demon, that he has a demon, and that by that demon, he's casting out demons. Well, Jesus explains to them that that doesn't make sense. And that's what we pick up in verse 23. And he called to them and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Which makes sense. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. I think we understand this principle, a house divided against itself. It cannot stand. And he goes on. If Satan has risen up against himself, he is divided. He cannot stand. He's coming to an end. I think this all makes sense to us. He explains that for Satan to drive out demons, it would be Satan pitting himself against himself. When Jesus is casting out demons, it's not like he's just simply telling them to relocate. When he, when he went to the demons, what did they, how did they respond to him? In fear. They knew that the one that was talking to them was not just this guy who was saying, leave. He was their creator. The demons knew full well who Jesus was. And so the demons, Jesus is coming, remember, into this world to bring life. And what do the demons coming to bring then? Death and destruction. And so he is using this point. Jesus knows that this is on the minds of the people there. So he uses this point as he talks about this strong man in verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder the house. I mean, I think about this. I see people walking at the park at my house. Uh, every single person over there I've sized up already. Why? Because I have three kids in the house. My wife's in the house. I'm like, what is this person doing? My dog sizes them up too. He barks at the old lady, so I've got a little bit more wisdom than he does. But 
they're not going to come into my house and take my things without first dealing with me. All right? That's just the facts. Well, what is Jesus then talking about here? Well, who is the strong man? What is Jesus coming to do? Jesus comes to give life and to give it to the full. Satan is trying to rob people. And so Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to come into the house. I'm going to bind the strong man and I'm going to take those things that are mine. And so in this particular image, Satan is the strong man. The goods are the people that are being trapped by demon possession, that are being trapped by the world, and Christ is coming and binding up those demons so that he can do his work. Where else do we see this in the Bible, where Satan is bound for a time? We just went through that book, right? Revelation. And so it's, a, it's not an uncommon picture. We saw this where the dragon is bound for a thousand years or whatever, and that is the period of time where, where Christ can do his work, and we see that even... In my own interpretation as what is currently going on during this time that Satan is bound, the house is being plundered. Jesus sets his people free through the ministry of his word can preach the gospel and people currently hear and receive. It's a good thing. So consider that backdrop. These scribes are saying this about Jesus, that he is casting out demons by the prince of demons, that he is that he is doing these things, the kingdom divided. So consider this backdrop to what he says next. He's accused of having a demon, but he's setting people free from evil. And then he brings out this thing about the unforgivable sin. They are taking these people, what are they doing? They're taking the works of Jesus, and they're essentially calling them the works of Satan. Imagine seeing what Jesus is doing. What is he doing? He's healing the sick. He's raising the dead. He's casting out demons. And they're saying, no, these aren't good things. These are evil things. These aren't things that bring life. These are things that bring death. They are preaching the exact opposite of what is going on. And so he's taking that message from the religious people of the day. These are the religious people that are saying this. These are the ones that claim to love God. These are the ones that claim to know Scripture. And he takes this, and that is what he says, starting in verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And so why did Jesus even feel the need to say this to the people? Well, it tells us in verse 30, why did he say this? Because they were saying that he had an unclean spirit. They were basically saying that the work of Jesus that he was doing was absolutely wrong and that to follow Jesus would be absolutely foolish. These are the religious people of the day, mind you. They were so hardened in their hearts that though they had seen the lame walk, can you imagine? These were the same people that sat in that house that was so crowded that those people had to lower their friend through the roof so that Jesus could heal them. They saw that man get up and walk, and now they're saying, you know what? He has a demon. They were so hardened in their hearts that though they had seen, they will see people rise from the dead, they were choosing against the, they were choosing to side against the worker of those who had worked those miracles. In Exodus, there's a story of Moses and Pharaoh. This is a story that we're all familiar with. 
Moses was a man sent in to deliver the people, people of God. Pharaoh was this guy who had the people of God in slavery. And God, Moses went in and said, let my people go. Or God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh would not. So we all know the story. What happened? Well, over and over again, there were these plagues. And what were the plagues? Well, the whole Nile River turned to blood. This is the longest river in the world turned to blood. The, the, the sky was filled with locusts and gnats. Frogs were coming out of everything. It rained down fire from heaven. Pharaoh looked around and said, eh, not impressed. That takes a really hard heart to do that. All the firstborn children of Egypt were killed. The people of God then were allowed to leave Egypt. But Pharaoh, upon realizing what had happened, now says, wait, we can't let this happen. Gets his best army and chases after them. When he gets to them, what does he see? He sees that the entire Red Sea is standing up and that the people of Israel are crossing through the middle of it on dry ground. You figure maybe he's seen enough and he's just going to turn around. No, he chases them into the middle of the sea where he meets his end. So understand, everything that he had been, had been seen, everything that he had seen and heard, he was so hardened in his heart that he saw God as his enemy. Imagine the one that made the Red Sea stand up in the middle saying, that's the one I want to fight against, the one that can do that. Being so hard in your heart. That's like Satan, right? Satan still fights against God knowing that he can't even win. So this, this kind of hardness is the picture that Jesus is talking about here. We may even know people like this. You may even know, I know people like this that are so, that are so hard in their sins that have set their sights so much as, as God as their enemy that they refuse to see any truth at all. God is an odd enemy to choose since there's no hope for victory at all, yet they fight nonetheless, constantly. You've heard the quote from several people that there are two tenets of atheism. You've probably heard this before, that there is no God and I hate him. You know, that's, that's what they're generally what the atheist says. There is no God and I hate him. The scribes and the Pharisees, they typified this idea, which is ironic because they were the most religious people in Israel. Yet all that religion hid them from the reality of what they needed, and that was Jesus. They needed a savior, and they were not their own savior. Now, what can we do with this as believers, with this kind of hardness of heart? It's really easy to read these words and think, okay, now, now I'm afraid. I don't want to commit this unforgivable sin. I feel like I've done so good to this life, to, to this point in my life as a Christian, and now I've read this, and now there's something that can just erase it all. Well, again, what do we need to do when we start to have odd thoughts like that? We need to go to the scriptures. And what do the scriptures tell us concerning our relationship with Christ and our security in him. We have to bring the full weight of scripture to a text like this 
And then what does the full weight of scripture say? That the Lord has set aside a people for himself from the foundations of the earth. And what does he plan to do with those people? Preserve them until the last day. How do we know that? Well, we could just continue for the next few hours listing off verse after verse. There's a few. John 640. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Does it say, except for if they do this? No, it doesn't. We know that that he who began a good work in us will see it through to completion in Christ Jesus our Lord. Philippians 1.6 What does he plan to do with those that are his? He plans to see them through to completion. What kind of condemnation can we expect to have in Christ Jesus our Lord? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is just a sampling, brothers and sisters, of the security that I know that I have in Christ Jesus. I know that even when I sin, he is hanging on to me. That even my sin, nor height, nor depth, nor anything out there can ever separate me from the love that he has for me. That's also in Romans 8. Scripture is full of references that suggest that those who are really his are his and he intends to save them. In fact, he doesn't intend to lose anything. Imagine that this creator that kind of created the stars in just three or four words in Genesis could lose something that he said was his. He doesn't. So we don't need to worry. In fact, what I would tell you is that your fear of committing this sin is evidence that you probably won't. Because a believer is concerned about their sin. Unbelievers don't even know that they're sinners. They don't even know that they need a Savior. They may say something like, oh, well, of course no one's perfect, but they really don't believe it about themselves. And they think that the best Savior that they could possibly ask for is the one that they see in the mirror in the morning. Yet, let me caution you, because there is time, any time we see something to this degree of seriousness, we should regard it serious. That doesn't mean that as believers we can just kind of flippantly go past this and think, oh, well, that doesn't apply to me. Of course it applies to us. We should always be evaluating our own hearts in all things. In my years in youth ministry, I met a lot of former church kids. And uh, I knew them in my youth ministry and then saw them kind of walk away from their faith. They grew up in the church. They heard the word of God preached. They heard it taught. Their parents taught them the way that they ought to go. Everything is fine until it wasn't. And they walked away from their faith because though their hearts may have been sensitive to it at first, though they may have received it with gladness at first, eventually it was choked out by the cares of this world. 
It's almost as if the Lord, when he put the, the book of Mark together, anticipated us having this thought, because guess what we're talking about next week? The parable of the sower. So again, that story isn't to scare us. Don't, don't, don't hear that and think, well, that, oh, that could be me. But it's to warn us, especially those of you who are currently growing up in a Christian home. You've heard the gospel every Sunday, at least that you've been here. Yet, that truth can make you hard against it. The truth that you're hearing can make you want to reject it. And so we have to be careful. We have to evaluate our hearts. When I hear a new directive from the governor, my first reaction is, I ain't doing that. Because that's in me. That is my heart. My heart is to reject authority. Your heart is too. And so when it comes to the word of God, we have to stay on top of it. We have to guard our hearts. There is still a part of our flesh that is rebellious and wants to rebel and sees that fruit in the midst of the garden. Says, eh, that wouldn't be that bad. We have to be careful. And so how do we do that? How do we do that as Christians? Well, we surround ourselves with God's word, which continually tells us who, the, who we are. And we surround ourselves with the people of God who are also struggling with the same things. The word reminds us who we are. It reminds us who Jesus is. It reminds us that we're saved anyway. The people of God are walking with us as we go. As soon as we depart from God's word and depart from the people of God, you can bet that our hearts are going to go with it and they're going to get hard. It happens quickly, and so we have to be careful. And what do we do when we see someone who is experiencing this kind of hardness? What do we do? Do we cast them off? Oh, the Lord's not going to forgive them now. That's not for us to say. We don't know those things. So what do we do? We pray for them. We preach the gospel to them. We give them the truth. Because who softened our hard hearts? The Lord. It's not up to us to do that. He's the one who does that. He can take a heart of stone and he can turn it to a heart of flesh. If you want evidence, just look right up here. No one is outside of the Lord's ability to save. And so we pray for those who seem like they're past saving because in all likelihood they aren't. That's up to the Lord. And so that brings me to this last point, the forgivable sinner. Look with me at verses 31 and 32. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Jesus' mother, who is very famous, Mary, and his brothers, we don't know how many brothers, they finally caught up with him and their, their goal was to take him away. Because remember what they said about him, he's out of his mind. Yet Jesus turns on them again saying that his family was actually around him. These people that are calling themselves my mother and my brothers, this, these are my mother and my brothers. He was talking about the people that followed him. Now, we have to be careful here. This doesn't mean that Jesus is disowning his family. If you want to see how much he loved his mother, go to the crucifixion. He obviously loved his mother. And so this isn't what's going on here. In fact, I would say that he doesn't, he's not disowning them. He's challenging them here. He is saying here that family ties aren't what define a person. Rather, what defines a person is what they believe concerning him. John chapter 1 verses 11 through 13, they say this. 
He came to his own, he, Jesus Christ, and his own people did not receive him. This could be talking about the Jews. It's obviously talking here about his mother and his brothers also. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh or the will of man, but of God. So it has nothing to do with who you are or what you've decided. Mary doesn't get a free pass just because she's the mother of Jesus. But instead it has to do with what God has decided. And this, brothers and sisters, should comfort us. Because what has God decided concerning his people? They are mine. So consider Jesus' mother and his brothers. We know something about them from later in life. We read in the book of Acts that Mary was with the disciples in the upper room. She wasn't there as a protester against their acts, but she was praying with them. She once, at some point, converted. There's historical evidence that she became an important member in the early church. She's not worshipped any more than any one of us is. And one of Jesus' brother, of course he becomes an important figure in the Jerusalem church. We read about him, James. James, the brother of Jesus, we even have one of his works left over from his time on earth. It's called James. It's uh, right after Hebrews. And so we know that he converted. Yet here in Mark 3, they said that Jesus was out of his mind and they were there to take him away. If this doesn't point to the ability of God to save whomever he wills, then nothing does. And it should comfort us because there may be those in our families that were with people that we think of as family, yet that are not our true family because we can't share our faith with them. But there is one who can save them nonetheless. And again, this points us back to Jesus because were it left up to us, we'd all be left in our sins and the hardness of our hearts growing harder and harder every day against him, fighting against the one who created us. We'd be at one end of the spectrum or the other. We'd either think ourselves so good that we didn't need Jesus or so bad that he couldn't possibly save us. Both of those couldn't be further from the truth. The true gospel says that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Our hearts that were once dead have now become alive in Christ. And he deserves all the glory for it. And so in conclusion... Let us rest upon Christ, not in our ability to keep a set of rules or to keep from committing this one big one here. Yet, let us always be aware of our sin, that we might grow further and further from it and then closer and closer to our Lord. And let us show this to a lost world who needs a Savior. Let's go to him in prayer, and I'll close this with prayer, and then we'll stand for the benediction. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to this difficult text, it's only difficult because we think too highly of ourselves. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to have a right view of who we are as we stand before you, our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend, our Creator. We pray that you would right our hearts, that you would strip us of all pride, that we would see the world as like sheep without a shepherd. 
that we would have compassion on them as they search anywhere and everywhere for someone to save them. Today it's from a pandemic. Tomorrow it'll be something else. But the answer is still the same. It's still you. So Lord, help us to be faithful to preach that message. Pray this in your name. Amen. So please stand now for the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go now in his peace. Amen.